Hi, my name is Ewin, and I was born in Thailand. Nepal. In northeastern of China. I'm Fred Lee. I was born in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and I identify as a second-generation Taiwanese-American. Hi, I'm Nare Kim. I am a um, South Korean citizen. I was born in Busan, South Korea. I find myself somewhere on the spectrum of transnational Korean and first-generation American. Hi, everyone. My name is Tree, or Tri, if you're a Vietnamese-speaking person, and I was born in Vietnam. I'm going to be your guest host in this special series. Over the years, Green Card Voices has had the honor of amplifying the voices of many Asian immigrants as they share their stories of coming to America. We are tremendously thankful for their outstanding contributions and long-standing friendship. We stand with you today and every day. Fred Lee is an associate professor of political science in Asian and Asian American studies at the University of Connecticut Stores. He works on contemporary political theory, U.S. political development, Asian and Asian American cultural studies, and comparative ethnic studies. His first book is Extraordinary Racial Politics for Events in the Informal Constitution of the United States, where he argues that racial crises emerge from normal politics, but yet also set new normals. His next book will be on the novelist Liu Shixian, filmmaker Bong Joon-ho, and East Asian science fiction. In his spare time, he enjoys watching reality TV with his wife and making solo piano music. Nare Kim is an assistant professor in residence at the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute at the University of Connecticut Stores. Her research explores 20th century neo-imperial exchanges between South Korea and the United States, through which both nation states began to reimagine ideal citizens as subjects exhibiting transnational sensibilities. She traces these processes via literary, cultural, legal, and political representations of Korean labor migrants, Korean Americans, and most recently, North Korean refugees. She is also a new mom. Her daughter Anna was born in early February, and she shares with us that, I find it wondrous learning to be a mother. Hi listeners, welcome to the fourth episode of the Green Card Voices hashtag Love Your Asian Neighbors podcast. Uh, today we have two guests on, both of whom are Asian American scholars, both Fred and Nare. This podcast is based on the Green Card Voices Story Stitch game, where we share stories that name vulnerable, complex things about our lives. The start of the game, uh, includes four questions where we introduce ourselves. They include, what is your name? What are your pronouns? Where do you consider home? Whether that's geographically, artistically, spiritually, otherwise. What languages do you speak or aspire to speak? And share something that you value about yourselves. Cool. Thank you, Tree, for uh, having us both on. And it's a pleasure getting a chance to, uh, to talk with you both uh, again. It's been a while since uh, we've seen each other, Tree. I think it's uh, two or three years now. Yep. Uh, and Nare, we see each other all the time on these uh, Yukon Zoom meetings, but uh, we don't really get much of a chance to really uh, get into it. So um, I'll start with the home question. I don't strongly feel I have like a hometown, a hometown or a homeland. Uh, as I mentioned, I was born in the Midwest uh, in what at the time was a very small uh, Midwest town called Sheboygan. Sheboygan's in Wisconsin. I barely remember it. And I didn't really grow up there. I left when I was four. 
I think if I did had to have to pin myself to a home, um, it would probably be the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, my parents have lived there uh, for two decades now. And when I meet up with them and meet up with my uh, immediate family, we meet in uh, Union City, California. So that's a kind of suburb, ethnoburb, a uh, little bit between, uh, let's call it Oakland and San Jose, between Oakland and San Jose. Um, I also have a kind of affinity with the Bay Area because I went to college uh, in, at UC Berkeley and uh, I really felt a lot of my like formative years were spent in the Bay. I only really speak English. I can speak uh, in order of fluency, Mandarin, Spanish, French, and Korean. Korean is just below rudimentary at this point. It's about six months of daily study. Uh, I actually took a Korean class uh, at one of those weekend schools uh, deals with Nare's husband. And so we were in there, uh, we were definitely the oldest people uh, at, at, at the school. Average age was uh, seven or eight, I believe. Uh, we were in the adult class, but you know, seven, eight-year-olds were putting us to shame. They really knew much better what was going on than we did. As far as Mandarin goes, uh, I've probably studied that language the longest. If you added up all my years, it would be something like two years as a kid, and now four years as an adult. Uh, these are actually the last four years of my life uh, where I really just wanted to attain fluency, uh, but it's still aspirational. Uh, last question is something I value about myself. Um, I aspire to be thoughtful. I'm not gonna be as conceited, uh, I'm not gonna be so conceited as to say that I am, but uh, you know, I try, I try. So thoughtful in the sense of trying to be uh, considerate or compassionate to others, but also thoughtful as in think before you act, think about how you've acted, think uh, before you speak, think about what you've said. Yeah, so thank you to Tree for inviting me and it's nice seeing you. Um, Fred, it's really nice to see you in the setting. Um, to speak a little bit about myself, I'll also start with, um, actually I'll start with my name. So my name is Nare Kim. Um, I'm Kim like so many other Koreans, um, but I'm a South Korean citizen. I actually recently got my green card, so I feel especially um, grateful that I'm in the screen card voices. Um, in Korean, my name is pronounced Nare. Um, and I have had a lot of different stories with my name because um, I don't necessarily share how my Korean name is pronounced in American setting unless it is with intimate close friends. So I have a long history of anglicizing my name as Nare. I've also had a phase where I got very tired with it. So I would just say Nare, even though it is not a difficult sound. I know that a lot of listeners do not necessarily um, understand it because it's not a mathable sound in English. Um, but at this point, I go with both, depending on my mood. And I think that's also how I think about my identity as um, a first-generation American 
somewhere along the lines of an immigrant and a foreigner, um, someone who is at the same time an Asian American and who is also becoming an Asian American or not. Um, that ties with my ideas of the home. So home is never a geographic space or a place for me. Um, my family moved to Sri Lanka um, when I was 11. Before that, I lived in a small town, well, not that small, um, a, a town in South Korea called Ulsan. Um, so ever since, home has been the place that was to come. Because when I was in Sri Lanka, even though I was with my family, it was um, supposed to be um, only three years. So I was, uh, I was supposed to go back home after three years. It became a little bit more than three years. When I went supposedly back home in South Korea, I learned that I myself has changed too much. And we didn't move back to Ulsan, but we moved to Seoul. Um, so it, was, it never really felt like home to me. I felt like I have to go back to another place where I would be speaking English, uh, which was the language that I was um, speaking a lot in Sri Lanka, probably too forcedly, um, too quickly. Um, so I had to adapt a lot. So I felt like South Korea is not my home necessarily upon my return. And then during my um, grad school education in Minnesota, yay Midwest, um, I also felt um, that I'm in this place of um, not necessarily not home, but a place where I would come home eventually. Grad school is a place that is supposed to end and my family wasn't with me and I was in supposedly um, America, a foreign country. So I couldn't necessarily determine where home is. Is it Korea where my family is? Is it Minnesota where I have, where I have found myself um, a home? Or is it um, a life after my graduate school and somewhere else than Minnesota? So right now I um, am in Connecticut, West Hartford. I have a home, I have a house, I have a husband, I have a daughter, I have a stable job. So I have everything that many people would think um, would qualify as a home, but it's a very strange place to be because I was never in this place. That home was always a place that I would get to. So it doesn't feel like I'm quite there. And I think I still feel like I will move, um, not necessarily just geographically, but um, in terms of how I um, feel about the space. Um, languages, I speak um, Korean. I'm a native Korean speaker. English is my second language um, that I have started speaking ever since I was in an international school in Sri Lanka. I have a very rudimentary um, French and Mandarin, and I know I try to be, or I aspire to be, um, at least conversational in Vietnamese because my mother-in-law is Vietnamese. I currently know probably too many food names in Vietnamese, but not very much so in other terms. Um, did I miss anything? Value. Um, I value that um, I am a person who likes to try to think about um, other people in their own shoes. Um, I think that comes from me being a literary scholar. I'm used to seeing many different perspectives and what are different things or thoughts or events that lead to someone's events or actions and thoughts. So I try a lot to think about other people in their own shoes. Thank you both so much. Um, it's great to hear such a variety of backgrounds and spaces to come from, things that you're both observing, and that uh, points to the richness that we have just 
between one in one person and think about the variety of people, um, variety of Asian diaspora who get to experience many different things that were not just a monolith, of course. Uh, brief thing, will you both share your pronouns just so that we have consistency? Your preferred gender pronouns, thank you. Apologize, I uh, forgot to do that. He, he, him. Thank you, Brett. She, her. Thank you, Nare. And just one more time, Nare. Uh, Nare, na, sorry, uh, pr pronouncing your first name. Uh, yeah, uh, I usually say Nare. Nare, thank you. Yep. Very good. And so moving on, the five questions that we have today for our main recording um, are from our extended story stitch game. We have added a section for COVID related questions because of our time. And so the first question on that list is describe the many ways your life has changed in recent weeks, specifically, but not exclusively your personal life, um, as opposed to your work life. So uh, Nare, would you like to go first, Sister? Yeah, um, so how my life changed after the COVID-19. Um, it is a little strange for me to think about that because I gave birth recently. Um, my daughter, Anna, was born on February 9th. So I actually um, was already sheltering in place um, because I had a quite a difficult birth and I was literally just home because I couldn't get out. And then by the time I got a little better after um, about four weeks and I wanted to go out, then the whole world started sheltering at home, um, especially so in America. So for me to think about the strange time, um, what really changed for me is this ideas of life, life and birth that suddenly came to me, like literally the birth of my daughter. And I myself feel like I had sort of a rebirth because I nearly died because of heavy hemorrhaging, but that I came back to life because of wonderful health professionals. My husband also had a surgery. Um, he removed um, his, um, what's the name of this organ? Um, adrenal gland, which had could have potentially killed him if he didn't remove it in time. That all took place in, in March and February. So this is a time where life and birth were, and death were very close together for me. And then with this pandemic, everyone is having a lot of different risks and different relationship to their health and safety. So just, um, it was a time that I think about life and death a lot. Um, in terms of um, like the practical things that changed in my life, um, because it is such a global pandemic, I think a lot of connections and disconnects happened for me. Like for instance, I was supposed to visit South Korea with my daughter and my husband over summer that of course got canceled. Um, my mother visited from me in South Korea to help me recover and also to meet her granddaughter. But um, it, I had to actually go through a really extensive list of how to prepare for her return because um, obviously um, South Korea also had pandemic and how to get her to JFK, um, whether to take an Uber, whether to take um, public transportation or whether to drive her and to prepare for all these different um, health related preparation to get her um, immigration in Korea easier was a big thing for me. I was pondering whether I should get her tested so that the negative test result would make her um, immigration process at the airport in South Korea easier. So all these things that 
connect you and disconnect you globally um, was something that really changed for me. And also um, many people, friends and family have been checking in. And I think this is where this idea of connection comes in. Um, many people were um, asking how I'm doing, how my family's doing, just checking in if we are all staying healthy and safe. So I've been doing a lot of Zooms and calls and FaceTimes and texts with other people. Um, and because, um, because my sleep schedule was so disruptive uh, with the newborn, I was actually able to speak to a lot of my friends in South Korea um, because usually it's a little harder to coordinate time because of the time difference, but I could do that. So this has been a weird time of disconnect and connections and a time that I was intensely thinking about life and death. Thank you, Nari. Um, and Fred? So this was um, supposed to be a sabbatical for me. And I was actually in California uh, doing a visiting scholar position at uh, the Ethnic Studies Department at UC Berkeley when we first started to see the COVID infections and the rate of infection in California start to rise fairly quickly. So this would have been around um, February and early March. I was out there staying with my parents and what Nari was saying about life and death definitely resonated with me. I mean, not in such a dramatic fashion uh, narrated. I was not aware of the, uh, well, basically all the things that were going on in your life. That's, that sounded um, quite intense. So I hope uh, you, Ivan, and your, uh, your families are, are uh, doing well. But I was with my parents, um, both of whom are in their mid-70s. My dad had heart surgery recently, so he was in a sort of vulnerable category. He had a pacemaker installed, and so he had his, uh, the proverbial pre-existing condition. That was a bit nerve-wracking, and I kept having to sort of calibrate between, well, I came out here to do this scholarly work, but I also know that every time I get on the the subway, and every time I go to, you know, some lecture, you know, that increases the risk that I will be infected and bring it home. That was an overriding concern. By the time March uh, started, I was just not going out. I would just stay up in my room and take my meals separately and just try and wash my hands and just make sure I wasn't uh, putting anyone's life at risk. So that it kind of brought home that certain people are more at risk than others uh, in a particularly kind of emotionally intense way. Interestingly, we didn't really like talk about it that much, but it just kind of reminded you that we're a family and it kind of reminded you that we're here to care for each other and love each other and uh, watch out for each other. I really haven't spent that much time with my parents in quite a while. And we were doing it under unusual circumstances. So I came back to Connecticut, uh, where I live and usually work around the middle of March. I recently got married. My wife and I got married uh, almost just about one year ago. And then we had six months of marriage. And then we went on a honeymoon for 
a week and a half. Then we came back and then I went out to California and then I came back and then our workplace shut down. And so we were both spending the overwhelming majority of our time in a couple rooms uh, together. And this is not actually something we had done too much of. I was very happy to learn that we actually get along pretty well. All things considered, high stress situation. I, I actually think it's improved our relationship. And I'm happy that we're not one of those, you know, those uh, couples you hear about on social media or in the mass media about they, they're driving each other crazy and their divorce rate and so forth. So that was a relief. And that was, I wouldn't say unexpected, but it was great. It was great to discover, uh, to learn that about our relationship. Uh, I'd co-sign everything Nari said about the check-ins. You know, I've tried to check in with uh, my grad students and check in with colleagues, uh, maybe colleagues I haven't talked to in a while, check in with friends, maybe friends. Well, it's been a couple years or I haven't seen them in a, a long time. Maybe I'll just send a text. Um, or even send a text saying, hey, let's set up a phone call. Apparently, nobody just calls anyone out of the blue these days. you got to set up the text and then set up a phone call. Probably my, my, the cousin that uh, I'm closest to, um, Shui, over in Taiwan. She's in um, Kaohsiung, Taiwan. She's been great. Um, she kind of let me know uh, how Taiwan is dealing with the COVID crisis, uh, how it's managed to keep its uh, new infections pretty low. I think, I think uh, South Korea and Taiwan are actually in the same ballpark. You know, they go several days at a time now without new infections. And many of the new infections are actually coming from abroad. Uh, all this without legal lockdowns and forced quarantines. There could be a whole book written about com comparing how various national governments have responded to this, this crisis in, in various parts of the world, sending care packages and, and, and such uh, gifts and this kind of thing. Uh, I think these are very important uh, just at a sort of interpersonal and I'm hesitant to say human, given what Tree was saying earlier about humanizing, but pro-social um, practices and kind of everyday connections. The next question is, um, I guess, specific one, since you're both uh, scholars of Asian American studies, among other disciplines. We want to ask you both, uh, what historical moments are you thinking about in relation to the COVID-19 crisis? As for historical moments, uh, I've got three, and I'll, I'll lay them out quickly because I know we're running out of time. Uh, first moment is the H3N2 pandemic. Uh, this was proverbial, uh, proverbially known as the Hong Kong flu, and it really started to spread in uh, the late 1960s, 1968, 1969. Uh, the reason I bring this up is, you know, there are some fairly clear analogies. Uh, it was named after a place. It was named after a place related to China. So a lot of uh, people call COVID-19 China virus. That's uh, how it's predominantly referred to in English. Uh, in Taiwan, before people started pointing out how problematic this was, uh, not to mention unscientific, a lot of people were calling it Wuhan virus, named after Wuhan, China. Okay, so Hong Kong flu. Uh, the reason I bring this up um, is... Uh, not only because of the naming, 
but also because of the place it played in the United States racial and imperial kind of imagination. And the reason I bring this up is as um, the director of our Asian and Asian American Studies Institute, Jason Chang points out in a very nice article called Virus X and Ending the Forever War, 69 and 68 uh, had a variety of refugee and immigrant politics um, uh, marking those years. So uh, the idea of foreign contagion was tied to uh, refugee populations from Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, uh, and also tied to the notion of communism. So this is your standard yellow peril, red scare business. Also happening in the late 1960s is uh, increase of new migration from South, Southeast, East Asia, due to immigration reforms that had happened in 1965. So there was just a lot more Asian uh, migration in general. Okay, so that's one moment. Second moment I would mention, um, and I'm building off of Long Bui, who has a very nice article. Uh, sorry, it's an op-ed actually. Long Bui's op-ed, it's called Coronavirus and Kicking America's Vietnam Syndrome. And uh, the article points out that the rhetoric of war and the idea that Trump is a wartime president is actually responding to this long-standing sense of defeat uh, related to America's, um, let's call it less than triumphant, intervention into Vietnamese civil war and its illegal expansion into Laos and Cambodia. So uh, Ronald Reagan was trying to kick the Vietnam syndrome, the sense that America couldn't uh, militarily uh, crush or contain communism in, in the Cold War against, against Russia. Uh, uh, both the Bushes uh, with their um, interventions and occupations of Iraq were, were self-consciously trying to kick the Vietnam syndrome, the syndrome amongst elite Washington insiders uh, who are running the show here. Uh, so when Trump is basically trying to make himself out into a wartime pre presidency and say that we're fighting a um, kind of biological enemy, uh, it's drawing on this long tradition of trying to not only rally around the flag, but actually uh, say there are going to have to be great sacrifices. And, you know, when um, nurses and doctors go into uh, the hospitals without uh, protective personal equipment, that's part of the sacrifice, you know, and thereby covering up for the lack of preparedness and the lack of uh, a coordinated national response. So this war business is, is not only trying to legitimate the United States as a nation state, uh, and some would say an empire, but it's also here to sort of cover up for the fact that we're asking healthcare workers um, 
many of them Asian American um, uh, to risk their lives uh, unnecessarily. Uh, there's a third. There's a third bit here, and I would just mention it very quickly. Sorry about this. I I know I go on for too long. Uh, don't let academics. Don't hand an academic the mic. They'll talk your ear off. We're just uh, so happy anyone's listening. Uh, but the third thing I mention is um, Japanese internment and World War II. And uh, the reason I would mention that is um, as with uh, the treatment of Japanese Americans uh, in that era, uh, the fate of um, racialized and minoritized populations seems to turn on inter-imperial rivalries. Back then, U.S. versus Japan. Right now, U.S. versus China. So uh, there's lots to take apart there, uh, and I certainly don't want to uh, come off as stoking the the flames of xenophobia and so forth. Xenophobia, that is. Uh, but I think this is important to think about. You know, as with Japanese Americans back around the turn of the 20th century, most Chinese Americans, uh, and I use that in the broadest sense of kind of Han Chinese overseas populations in uh, the uh, United States, uh, they're really kind of caught between and not particularly gung-ho America or gung-ho China. I think, that's, I think that's kind of important to remember. Thank you so much, Fred. Uh, that was very useful. I'm glad to be able to listen to you both very much. Um, maybe, maybe that's just because of the, the moment we're in, uh, but I Hope that people will listen to educators no matter the, the time. Uh, Nare, would you like to speak? Share? Yeah, I'll speak very briefly. I mean, I agree entirely with everything that Fred said. And I also were was thinking about similar times. Um, for the sake of time, I'm just going to add a few brief things. I was thinking within the same um, ideas of imperialism and names and politicizing of different names and different ethnic minorities. Um, specifically, I was thinking about three um, overlapping and not overlapping moments. One, Chinese exclusion era, 9-11, um, Japanese incarceration. Um, again, I think it is a longer historical um, condition in America of politicizing Asians um, different groups of Asian immigrants or uh, as or Asian Americans within as this potential invasive contagions, right? And those, that idea has always, I argue, and as many people do, I think it was always there, but it just pops up more in certain historical moments, the moments that Fred has made, named, um, and also the three moments that I named. In, in Chinese Exclusion Act, they specifically talk about how Chinese people may um, bring in different viruses and different disease and therefore um, that um, therefore the the gatekeeping of America should be stronger at the Angel Island um, the sentiment that continued on and that continues on in um, President Trump's executive orders about immigrants and refugees and visas um, in our current moment. 
of course, Japanese incarceration and 9-11, how um, there were a lot of hate crimes against Asian Americans, against Muslims, against perceived Japanese. Um, just to add one thing that Fred, I think, didn't mention um, to all the things that I wholeheartedly agree with Fred, um, I think I was thinking specifically about 9-11 and the Japanese incarceration, um, not only of what Fred said, but also because those were the times that it led to pitting against of Asian Americans among each other. So that like during the Japanese incarceration era, Chinese and Koreans, because of their um, perceived phenotypical similarities with Japanese Americans, they had to wear a badge. I'm not a Japanese, I'm Chinese. And that created a culture of suspicion and non-coalition among already um, minoritized ethnic minorities. Um, so this, as Fred has mentioned, is a condition that has always existed, but that pops up, that becomes more visible in different moments. Um, and just to add another thing, very briefly, um, I, I'm thinking about gardening a lot because, and I haven't gone out to the garden, but it's one thing that's in mind because I have recently purchased homes and I was thinking about how it's so interesting that a lot of invasive species are called like Japanese dogwood, um, Chinese carp, um, and, and the things that the plants or species that have Japanese or Chinese or Oriental in, as the signifier always seem to have stronger invasive life. And I'm thinking about how interesting that is, how there is this pervasive cultural idea that Asians, be them Chinese, Japanese, Southeast Asians, refugees at different moments in American history, the target changes, but the, this idea that Asians are perpetual foreigners, that they are contagions, that they are something alien to America that continues even in 2020 was really interesting to me. If I could just add on to this, this point uh, we're on right now about invasive species, uh, as Nare was pointing out, uh, a lot of this rhetoric and imagery goes back to the late 19th century um, and is especially tied up with uh, the idea of Chinese people. Uh, so a lot of the imagery um, surrounding Chinese people, Claire Kim points this out in her book, uh, Dangerous Crossings, has to do with pests, rats, uh, locusts, and it has to do with the idea that Chinese people eat pests, insects, snakes, uh, rats, and so forth. And the idea that this animalization of Asian racialization is also a vector of contagion and disease. So you see this is all in, this, in, in these, these stories about uh, so-called wet markets in China and how because Chinese people eat weird stuff, that's why um, these various H blank, N blank, and whatever diseases uh, are transferred to humans. Those ideas are extremely old. They're extremely old, and they all have to do with the sort of um, 
constellation of animalization, racialization, and pathogen um, racism. Yeah, so I think it's not a coincidence that Wuhan virus, when people yep. were talking about it, people were usually talking about the bats, right? The yep. eating habits of the bats that actually was drawn as the, like the bat, you know, the bat shirt. I'm forgetting the exact name of the shirt that was mm. um, drawn by the Lululemon art director. I, I, I didn't see that one, but it makes yeah, sense what you're saying. Yeah, it just is so connected. It's, it's mind-blowing. This is um, our neutral number four question in our story stitch game. And it is share what you know about your distant ancestors beyond our great grandparents. And this is where I'd like to hear what you both know about, you know, pre white settler colonial Asia. Um, I'm, I want more people to know about that, that. I'm sure you both want that too. So my distant ancestors, um, I actually have no knowledge of them. And I have a very good answer for it. Um, that is because I come from parents who were born during the Korean War and grandparents who lived through the Korean War and who have lived through the colonial era. Um, so the K Korean War was a very disruptive experience, as you can imagine, with any types of wars that has resulted in over 60, 70 years of unresolution, the Korean War, um, just so that it is clear, has never ended. It is in a ceasefire status. It was not, the peace treaty was never signed, so it is still going on. Um, and it divided the country in two. So my grandparents were of the generation who did not want to speak about anything else that came before. Um, it also has to do with the fact that both my parents' families came from North Korea, so they were essentially North Korean refugees in South Korea who have settled um, in South Korea because of the war. So their life has been fundamentally disrupted. And when you have that sort of disruption in your life, I think people do not want to talk about what came before. That idea of generational continuities or connections didn't mean much to them because their lives have been uprooted to something that they do not recognize anymore. So I have heard little bits and pieces of different stories of my ancestors, the ones who were at were getting really good colonial education during the Japanese colonial era, the ones who were in this one of the first Christian academies in in North Korea at that time. But Again, I want to underscore that they were anecdotes. It was never something continuous. It wasn't um, a practice, in, at least in my family, which I think is shared by many people in my generation because the war was so still vivid in people's mind. Um, people didn't either want to talk about what came before or, or what came before was too traumatic for them to talk about and also shameful um, and also just too hard to just iterate. So um, one of the nicknames that America has given to the Korean War is the secret war. Um, Oh, no, the secret wars. I'm sorry, not the secret war, but the forgotten war. And it is so interesting because it is not forgotten in so many Korean people's minds. It's just scorching to their consciousness, but it had to be forgotten because of the immensity of it. So I think that's my answer, long answer for why I have no knowledge, really, of my distant ancestors. That, that was a, a 
fascinating answer, Nari. Um, you know, a lot of um, American-born Asians, or maybe just me, we we imagine that people who were born in Asia and who lived there longer somehow have much better knowledge of the distant uh, ancestry or the distant um, history and seeing how it was, in your case, uh, the transmission of that knowledge was disrupted by um, war and trauma and um, uh, in some cases not wanting to, to, to engage um, with the past uh, was just uh, informative. So also, uh, also uh, another reason I'm happy to be here with uh, both of you because I'm learning. Um, I also don't know that much about um, my family prior to the uh, great-grandparents. So I know more about the grandparents um, and I was able to meet them um, in Taiwan, although I didn't know that much um, about them. Uh, none of them spoke Mandarin. They spoke um, what Taiwanese call Taiyu, Taiwanese, um, which is, um, it's a dialect from um, the Fujian and Guangdong regions of China, Southeast China. Uh, so uh, we didn't have any languages in common. Uh, they didn't have any Mandarin because they were not uh, formally educated. Uh, they didn't um, make it to high school. And that's um, part of uh, the general story of uh, Taiwan's economic development and so-called modernization. Uh, and here in the United States, uh, there weren't there weren't Taiwanese schools. Uh, if you studied uh, language on the weekend, you were studying uh, Mandarin. Um, so. But to, to more directly answer this question, I know that the um, distant ancestors, I guess we could call them, were from Southeast China. This is the Han Chinese. Uh, they, in a way, became overseas Chinese, if you want to think about it like that. Uh, they came over sometime in uh, the Ming or Qing dynasties. Once again, it's hazy. I'm, I'm not sure even my parents uh, know the uh, real story there. Um, because the earliest um, migrants, or if you want to just be more blunt about it, settlers, uh, they were settlers and they were colonizers, um, were predominantly men. There was some intermixture uh, and intermarriage with the Aboriginal peoples of Taiwan. I know I have a small fraction of Aboriginal um, Taiwanese ancestry due to these um, 23andMe tests and so forth. Um, and they stayed in uh, Taiwan, in the south of Taiwan. Uh, they were there for a long time before um, the, the Chinese Civil War and the, and the Nationalist Party fled to Taiwan and took over, basically. And some have argued that was another form of colonization. Uh, but my, my family um, considers themselves Taiwanese. Uh, they consider Taiwan to be a country, um, and they were uh, 
peasants and farmers for many, many generations uh, down to my uh, grandparents. Looking forward, how do you hope this moment of global crisis is remembered in the future? And Fred, please go ahead. So I, I, I've got two answers. The first has to do with um, Asian America, broadly speaking. And what I hope uh, happens is that we remember this COVID-19 crisis as the time when we put a number of myths to rest. One of these is Asians are a model minority. One of these is Asians don't have it that bad in the United States. It's kind of oppression Olympics game. Uh, one of them is um, uh, that Asians are honorary whites. Uh, one of these is uh, that the main questions of Asian American politics are media representation and representation in the formal institutions of politics. So at a minimum, I would just hope we can put that, 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 that we'll see that a lot of the more, I would call moderate and mainstreaming efforts of Asian American politics, sometimes this is um, lampooned as what's called boba liberalism. Boba liberalism, I'm sure we've all heard this. Uh, that these strategies are not actually either for protecting us at a sort of very basic level of, I don't want to be the victim of a hate crime, um, that at minimum, but also just um, they aren't, they, they seem to be out of step with the magnitude of, of, of the crisis and the unique sort of vulnerabilities that I think uh, Asian Americans as a whole and uh, especially the more vulnerable uh, segments, uh, people who are lower income, health disparities, income, class domination, elderly and so forth, many people realize how deep the crises were around migrant detention or mass incarceration or um, um, class differentiated, race and ethnic differentiated underlying conditions in health. Uh, the crisis around um, affordable uh, higher education and the um, inequalities surrounding that. Um, the crises surrounding the service economy and who's uh, be at basically being asked to sacrifice their lives so that, um, well, middle-class people like me can order food off of Amazon and so forth. Um, so what I hope, though, is that the mainstream realizes, mainstream, just broadly speaking, that kind of Joe Biden liberalism is not going to be any solution to Trumpist authoritarianism, that we have a deep set of crises surrounding the basic institutions of our society, and that liberal democratic capitalism uh, is really um, reaching a crisis point or a turning point. I, I, I would hope that uh, this would be the beginning of a sort of um, left resurgence. Um, 
I used to have high hopes around the Democratic Socialists of America and Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, but we saw how that turned out. So I think we're going to have to start, um, well, maybe thinking along other lines. I know some in the DSA wanted to basically double down on those efforts of trying to exert progressive leadership in the Democratic Party, but I'm not um, quite so enthusiastic about those prospects anymore. I um, agree with many things that Fred has said. I was also thinking about similar issues. One is the structural issues, how, as many people have pointed out, and as Fred echoed, um, that social distancing is um, a luxury for some people. There's a lot of people who do not get to do that. Um, just simple things like getting food, um, just simple things like staying healthy, access to health care, access to education, um, or even just to retain a home is a luxury for many people and that the society is structurally deeply unequal um, and that we need to do something about it. Um, the Asian American Studies Institute um, at University of Connecticut, where I am currently at, is currently working on the student stories and we're producing illustrations with it. So I'm, I'm thinking a lot about how the students especially are hit by this pandemic. And this brings out multiple issues. Um, students who can get college education, I think, are the ones who are privileged. Um, but even those students fear the questions of debt um, uncertainty, access to health care, um, losing money um, because they are unemployed or they do not have a home to return to. So all these are in my mind a lot. Another is the question of globalization. I wish that this would be a time that people think about the negativities or the pitfalls of globalization as well as the possibilities of globalization because I don't want this to be just a negative moment that people remember how COVID all ruined our lives because I do see a lot of good things that come out with it as we mentioned earlier, um, like how media is connecting us, how it took COVID to reach out to our friends or families, um, but also to really remember that this pandemic is really global, that a virus is not contained in a single country, that people move, ideas move, cultures move, things, money, they all move in our time so that as new global ties become possible so that people are connected, they also create problems. They also create more inequalities. People who cannot move are also affected by this which doesn't mean that globalization is a bad thing. I do think it's something that we cannot um, reverse at this point. And I think it is a great thing at the same time, but we shouldn't just be basking at this globalization of globalization. We should be thinking about ways to deal with it more wisely rather than to just um, repudiate certain groups of people as um, the root of the virus or this country has dealt with it really well, whereas this other country didn't deal with it well. It should be seen more holistically. Tell it about a time when your life felt abundant. So I think it's a tricky question and difficult question for me to think about. Um, and I think the reason it is difficult is because when we think about abundance or poverty, it's a relative term, right? It's not like we feel abundant in and of itself. It's like we felt abundant in relation to my current poverty or in relation to my lack, right? Same as 
poverty or lack, right? It is always a relational concept. So I, at certain moment, tried to stop thinking in relative terms. I mean, it is hard as a human, I'm trying to not gonna say human, but it's hard not to think in relative terms because you see people around you, you also compare different events and times in your life. But I do try to think that how you perceive your life at one moment changes after time passes you only come to understand your life better at different moments so i don't so um so i'm just not gonna try to say that my life felt more abundant at one moment over others but i'm gonna just try to reflect on why my life feels abundant at this moment i feel that my life is abundant right now which is not opposed to any other moments but just the good things that i enjoy in my life I have healthy family. I am really enjoying my new time with a newborn that I have. I also see abundance in community. Um, I have moved to my new house um, in October of last year. So I lived here for a little bit over six months now. Wow, that has been a while now. Um, I haven't had a chance to meet a lot of neighbors um, before, but because of COVID-19, um, I started taking little walks around the block and I'm seeing a lot of neighbors who just happens to sit outside at their porch and we start having conversations and we were joking that it actually took COVID-19 for us to actually see each other's faces and to say hello. It also became a time where when my husband and I are finding many new paths around our house before we um, just or either too busy to find new things, or we just drove to some place and then walked around the reservoir or this great park that we have. But now we were trying to find a place that is a little more isolated so that we can remain um, having that social distance. So we started finding a lot of great new paths around my house. So um, that is to say that the point is that it's not that I have great neighbors or great path around me, but my life feels abundant because I feel that I have, I can find new things and do, do new things in this moment in my life. And I want to retain that in the future moments as well. We have a, a Yukon speculative fiction group uh, where we read sci-fi and fantasy and other um, books uh, that are related to possible futures and uh, often tying those futures to the past. So for me, this is like deeply historical and deeply um, political kind of fiction. I think it's kind of the corollary to historical fiction, so-called. Um, we met on Zoom. I was about a month into my quarantine. I hadn't really been hanging out on Zoom uh, too much. And we just had a great two hour discussion of Octavia Butler's Parable of the Talents. It's, um, if you don't know the book, it's about a sort of um, post pandemic collapsing nation state, uh, United States. Um, which in our timeline is already passed. Uh, so it, it was it was really kind of ahead of its time. And uh, you could call it visionary or you could call it like a very prescient extrapolation of, of 
trends from back in the 90s when it was written. That was a good moment. That was a good moment. Um, I also felt some sense of community, although less at a face-to-face -face level. When I did one of these mass town halls, um, by the, it was a Zoom town hall by a group called 18 Million Rising. 18, I don't know if you all were there, but that's very interesting. Very interesting. Because there have been a lot of, um, let's call them classic left or old left or socialist and anarchist um, responses to the COVID-19 um, crisis. Uh, there was a really good one with Haymarket, Haymarket Books, uh, Naomi Klein and Kianga Yamada Taylor uh, were there with, uh, yeah, that was a good one. But what I really appreciate about this 18 million rising one was it brought the kind of anti-colonial and the anti-racist and the, um, um, I know it's outdated, but kind of third worldist ideas and, and, and um, racial critique in conjunction with the anti-capitalist and the question of labor and how to organize production and who has access to resources and so like so for me that's the future of, of the left we got to overcome this old left new left thing <laughs> uh and it has to be done and this is probably my my own political biases it has to be done on new left terms we cannot pretend that the 1950s 1960s didn't happen because as far as I can tell, those were some of the most revolutionary politics and ideas that ever happened in this country. Okay, so that's another moment. And what, I, what I'm really just trying to say is, yes, I've, I've felt great moments of personal abundance and many of those um, happen with family or my wife or good friends, but in the COVID-19 times, I think this, attempt to sort of build community and be in solidarity and at least discuss potential ways of allying and being uh, together is very, very important. And those were moments of community for me. Abundance and community. I'm so glad we had this, this uh, recording with you both. I'm very, very happy. I feel abundant right now. And I think that's it for this main recording. Thank you listeners for uh, staying tuned. We are going to move into our extended recording with our guests where you'll see us at Patreon. We'll be using questions, exploring questions from our story stitch deck where the guests can talk about more personable uh, aspects of their life through the questions. And so we'll see you there if you want to. Otherwise, uh, you'll see us on the next episode. Until then, we'll see you soon. Bye. Doing the special shout out for all our Patreon patrons uh, who are already supporting us on our Green Card Voices Patreon virtual story stitch page. So shout out to Emily, Karine, Amy, Genevieve, Jean, and Ben. You are all helping to make Green Card Voices able to do the work that we do during these challenging times. Thank you. Hi everyone. Once again, it's Tree, back from the future. And I just wrapped up our third Patreon stitch picks the exclusive extended guest recordings available only for our podcast Patreon subscribers. Hear from Fred, speaking to what it means to be a responsible academic, whether in a private or public capacity, as the social and political climates in the world grow more stormy and intense. Hear from Nare, sharing how she's adapted to different national contexts, like Sri Lanka, South Korea, and the U.S., 
while wrestling with her legibility and commodifiability as a knowledge laborer, transnational scholar, and person. And even more topics, like Fred's praise for speculative fiction and change of heart around public and accessible intellectual work. Nowadays, remarking on the interest of Asian American studies expressed by Koreans, its scholarship potential in non-U.S. transnational centers of intellectual influence, and her desire to live and teach in many different places and academic systems. Head on over to Patreon and take a listen, and tell us in the comments how the ideas that Fred and Nare share take shape in your life. Use the web link bit.ly forward slash 4rgcvneighbors to get started. Again, that's bit.ly forward slash 4rgcvneighbors. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more of our Green Card Voices podcast soon. See you around, neighbors. The questions that guide this episode were drawn from Green Card Voices Virtual Story Stitch activity. Virtual Story Stitch is a modified version of GCV's Story Stitch conversation card game. Story Stitch was co-created with 70 community members as a way to build deep connections between immigrants and their neighbors by telling stories, opening minds, and encouraging people to get to know one another. In March of 2020, responding to the COVID-19, also named the coronavirus pandemic, we co-created again and came up with a virtual version of the game to stay connected, share our stories, and feel less isolated during the time of social distancing. In addition to the 33 questions in Green Card Voice's Story Stitch deck, we have added seven bonus questions pertaining to the COVID-19 pandemic. For more information, visit patreon.com, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, slash virtual story stitch. If you're ready to have access to your own virtual story stitch kit, join by becoming a patron on our Patreon today and give what you can. Your support funds the free services and resources we offer to our community. Thank you.